Can we talk about Mal Evans' diaries? Yeah. A tragic loss to our knowledge, not perhaps as a detailed technical chronology, uh, but, um, but as a social history from the man who was there the whole time. And more critically, something that was um, written at the time. So, the questions are, do the diaries still exist? Have you had access to them? And have you seen Mel's near-complete manuscript of his unpublished book? Right. Um, the diaries, Mal Evans' diaries do exist. I've seen 63. I've, and I've seen several of the others a long, long time ago, way back in about 1991. Right. Um, long before I was ever contemplating a history of the kind I'm doing now and well before digital cameras yeah. and in, not in the vicinity of a photocopier or indeed with the, in the position to be able to make notes so I turned the pages I remember the 71 diary was very good on all of George's session dates oh. and, 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 and more John actually John's session dates more than George's um, but all their comings and goings basically um, I did go through them skimpily yep. and I always hoped to, to regain the opportunity at some point and certainly when I began this project I realised it was a priority that I actually had proper access to all the, di- all the diaries and so far I've not managed it I've only done 60 I've got 63 well, okay. but I haven't got the others are they and the good six- hands? yeah okay yeah, they're in the family still. Yeah, okay. that's, that's good so they're the best yeah, hands. Yeah. Uh, they're where they should be, and they shouldn't ever be made public, really, until they're ready for it. Yep. Welcome this week's One There Was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm John Stone. Joining us this week, as we've been promoting for the last several weeks, one of our favorite people, not just because he comes from Houston, Kenneth Womack of Monmouth University. Hey, Ken. Hey, how are you guys doing? Very good. Thank you. Barry didn't get back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sure is good to hear your voices. I guess we've talked a couple times, but I haven't seen you since the Monmouth, the White Album conference which is now what three years back that's right and uh i think it's time for another one don't you well i mean what's next well i was talking to mr lewison last week and 
I was saying, you know, what could be an album that could bring people back? And we were thinking maybe with the Beatles and uh, thought about Please Please Me, but that's a spring release. Whereas with the Beatles is in the fall and that's a really good time for people to come out to the shore. It's not too cold yet. Maybe with the Beatles in uh, 2023. What do you think? Well, it sounds like a plan. There's also a band on the run that year. I mean, that could go as something that deserves its own thing. Well, that's true. Now, as you know, though, these uh, conferences have open calls, so there could be a band on the run panel. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So we brought you on this week in particular because, well, as we've been going through Get Back, we spent seven weeks on Get Back. We did a show on every three days in the film. So in other words, you've spent almost as much time on the show, if not more, than the actual running time. Oh, oh yes. Uh, the, 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 the folks over on EggPod did do a uh, podcast for every single day, all 22 days of Get Back. Wow. You didn't go quite that far. Well, you guys have a life, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine listening to it. Well, I've listened to all of it. So Did you? Well, I have managed to listen to all of it. So uh, the one thing that kept coming up over and over again was, well, what exactly is George Martin doing here? And what do we see of George Martin in Peter Jackson's film? Well, you know, what George is doing is uh, he made a uh, an unhappy discovery, really, at the beginning that he was kind of edged out. He'd been a little frozen out. They really were going with Glenn Johns and they may not have exactly told George in so many words. And so he felt a little funny being there, but he got over it pretty quickly because as I know, you know, at this point, he uh, has his own firm, AIR Air, Associated Independent Recordings, and he needs the money. So he's happy to invoice them, (laughs) you know, to show up and be part of things. He's happy to send a bill. And my favorite shot, probably in the entire production, and there are a lot of good ones, but is the one where George is sort of inelegantly reclining on the floor reading a newspaper. Right. (laughs) I think it kind of says it all, but hey, he's getting paid. (laughs) In Apple Studios, yeah. You know, my experience in the studio has been that Glenn Johns was acting as the engineer. Well, you know, uh, that's been discussed, but McCartney essentially said to him that it was his album to produce. Engineers were never, did not become producers. They were engineers and remained so. Producers were another breed of people. I really had to battle like hell to get recognized. By that time, the Beatles had had 17 number ones, but were slowly beginning to self-destruct, and for the first time called in an independent engineer. That engineer was Glyn Johns. During his stay with them, he recorded the basic tracks of the Let It Be album and some of Abbey Road. I think if the album had come out, my version of the album had come out, they had all agreed to uh, give me a producer's credit on the record. Lennon was the only one who questioned it. He couldn't understand. I said, to, I, I sat each one of them down and I said, look, I know you originally employed me as the engineer on these sessions, but I, I consider that as there was no producer and as I was the only one there and I have actually put it together on my own, I would really appreciate a producer's credit. I don't want any royalty. I don't want any money. I just want to produce his credit. Well, all the, all the other three said, yes, that's perfectly right. John Lennon said, why don't you want any money? <laughs> he couldn't understand why I didn't want any money. So I explained that. I said, look, <laughs> if I was there or 
Joe Bloggs was there, you'd sell three billion zillion records anyway. So I don't deserve a royalty on your records. There's no way I deserve a royalty on your records. But obviously, if my name is there as the producer, and I owe many asking for credit for what I did, then clearly I will benefit from it in other ways. You know, it'll be assist my career, to say the least. And I think he understood. But anyway, my my version of the album never did come out. And George had sort of found out on that first day that. He would be in the background, and he he was a gentleman about it. He said a lot of nice things to Glenn Johns, and in fact, as we see, he and Glenn Johns start to work well together, and as you guys know, thinking about Beatles history, um, right afterwards, they begin a kind of long journey together, uh, often at Olympic Studios, where they're trying to knock that thing into shape, but never quite, uh, never quite to the Beatles' satisfaction. Right. Right. Although it may be Glenn Johns' memory, but I mean, the way he recounts the story, you know, they certainly invited him in to do something, but he says that they really didn't ask him to produce the record until after they were done. Hmm. I guess I was coming up with different conclusions during my George Martin research, uh, <laughs> but you did the research. I did do it. It's true. (laughs) I did do the work. And that certainly is my impression and that George was being frozen out there. And, uh, you know, not in a harsh way, but he could tell that they were moving in a slightly different direction. Now, as you guys also know, George had taken a minor three-week vacation toward the end of the White Album. Right. Leaving Chris Thomas in charge. And also missed the Hey Jude shoot at Twickenham. I use this in class when we talk about this section of the Beatles story. I remind them, this is why it's important to be there, to be on scene, right? To make sure that your interests are always being looked after. And George missed the moment of ideation, you know, when they're talking with Michael Lindsay Hogg about what's about to transpire, about this new idea of, you know, what we would know is getting back later, Right. Right. So it's a, it's a good object lesson and why you need to show up. And we must remember <laughs> that George was not there in September when really this whole idea started brewing. That's right. And I'm still trying to figure out what was Paul McCartney thinking when he went to the press in the middle of September, a full month before the record is done, saying, oh, we're going to do a live show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and if you recall from our conference in uh, 2018, Mark was sharing with us advertisements and and the thinking about that. Yeah, incredible. (laughs) So, I mean, George himself has sort of come back and said that this was the worst period of his life with the Beatles, if not his entire life. It doesn't seem like it's all that bad from what we get in the film. Now, which George do you mean? Martin. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Um, I think this is where that distinction does matter a great deal. But, you know, when I do teach this record in class, I love it because it's such a, a good lesson in addition to what we talked about just moments ago and what a comeback is, right? And it's such a magnificent example of how the great ones can, to use a baseball metaphor, pull it out in the ninth, right? Grasp victory out of the jaws of defeat. And they really do that with this record. I mean, one thing that the show really demonstrates, the documentary, is just they're a bit of a mess. I mean, there are magic moments when we watch Paul bring get back out of the embers of nothing, but they're also not as tight, even as they were a few months earlier when they would do oldies as outtakes on the white album. There's been some slippage in the meantime, but 
One thing that's really good for George Martin is when they move to Apple Studios, he gets to be a hero, right? He gets to show up and uh, use his connections to get Alan Parsons over (laughs) to make up for Magic Alex. And by the way, the greatest moment, in addition to George and elegantly reclining on the floor of Apple Studio, (laughs) is that moment with the two-sided guitar I would love to know where that thing is. It's not in the Malcolm Frederick Evans archives, I can tell you that. Where is that thing? Because it's wonderful. (laughs) It it probably only lasted that afternoon. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Yeah, it it didn't even exist by the rooftop concert. Yeah. Um, It's just, it looks like a giant weird plushy toy. Now, Alex rang me yesterday, George, and said that you didn't think that uh, you needed an eight track console. Alex said he can build one. Now, the thing is, it might go wrong. Yes. Yeah. So one other question. Okay. What was going on with Mal on the Roof? You know, the story came out right after Get Back premiere that the cops had arrested Mal on the way up to the roof, and supposedly that came out of his diaries. Were you part of uh, releasing that to the press? Oh, yes. Okay. That's how we have that, yeah. So what was actually going on there? And, you know, it doesn't look like they were actually ready to arrest him. Well, they already had. What had happened was as they were walking up and I spoke to Michael Lindsay Hogg a couple of weeks ago and he kind of gave me this really nice rundown on the uh, architecture is the wrong word, on the layout of the stairwells. And what had happened was the one fellow, the young fellow uh, who was sort of the mouthpiece for the, the cops there, as they were going up the stairs, and this is in Mal's unpublished memoirs, he said to Mal, he, and he had a good reason to be mad at Mal, actually, because what Mal was doing, when you don't see him up on the roof, he's screwing around downstairs, he'd go to the basement, he'd say hi to the cop every now and then, he'd say, I've just got to go have a ciggy, you know, and he'd have a cigarette. And so the cops sort of started to figure out that Mal was sort of slow walking him. Oh, you're kidding. So when he finally said, we're going upstairs, when they're going up, he said, I need to tell you, you are going in my book, which is you are going to be under arrest. You're leaving with me. And so when they came back down, according to Mal's memoirs, Paul must have charmed the police out of the idea of arresting anybody, much less Mal. But yeah, Mal was going down. I love that section of the rooftop concert, the aftermath. And I did get this wrong in my George Martin book simply because I was working with the raw audio. I had George Martin going up to greet them, but he never left the basement studio where he was. And that's where he has that magnificent moment where he's almost in a reverie. He's so excited and talking about a team of, you know, a squadron of helicopters with speakers on them that could broadcast. As Mike was saying, you know, this is a very good dry run for something else, too. Apart from the value of this own, as, it, as it stands, yeah. it's... Mark Lewison said that maybe he was just happy that he hadn't been arrested. George Martin was very afraid he was going to go down. He now could have gone down in the paddy wagon to get all his guys on the premises could have yeah <laughs> then it would have just been like that comedy bit you know where george martin got kidnapped and keeps telling old beatles stories oh that's wonderful yeah <laughs> 
Thanks, man. Do, do, do you think the release uh, represents a positive shift in attitudes towards the West, or is it just a uh, publicity stunt? Well, I never really understood all the criticisms against Ringo's drumming. As far as I was concerned, he was an inventive and powerful player. You only have to listen to some tracks like, I don't know, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, uh, Hey Jude, Strawberry Fields, and I could go on. Absolute tour de force. From what we see, it doesn't seem like the cops are ready to actually arrest Mahal. It's like, oh, okay, we're, we're behind you, and oh, you're, you're going to turn off the amps, and... <laughs> Well, it's already happened. See, it happened on the stairwell on the way up, according to Mao's book. Cops in the States wouldn't do that, particularly since there were, what, four or five of them at that point. They would have sent some of them up to the roof, and then they would have just at least taken them and put them in the back of the car. There's no telling how badly things might have gone in the States. You know, this is England where <laughs> the fear of God goes into Mao because he says, I'm writing your name in my book. You know, <laughs> You know, Mal thinks he's going up the river at that point. Right. But it could have been a threat rather than an actual, I, you know, that he got arrested. Well, should we go to the tape? <laughs> the airplane had actually done the very first rooftop thing in New York City, and uh, that was a couple of months before the Beatles went up, you know, late 68. And we see the footage, and there is footage of that too, and the cops just storm in and stop them, like, toward the end of their very first song. Right. So I happen to have the memoir open right here. I was working with it earlier. And let me tell you what he wrote, since you guys seem very concerned about this. All right. <laughs> I'm reading this for the first time anywhere. We I, have an exclusive, folks. That's right. This is being debuted on your show. So I hope you recognize the significance of that for the first time anywhere. <laughs> It'll be in the ads. That's right. So Mal writes, I went away for five minutes, had a crafty smoke and came back. You know, he would go up and down. He'd said, asking if that was any better. In other words, did I turn it down appropriately? But of course, <laughs> nothing had been turned down. He's just BSing him. Mal continues, the Beatles wanted to record at least half a dozen songs on the roof for the finished film, and I was gaining as much time for them as possible. But after several such excursions to the cellar, the police insisted on going to the roof of Apple. On the way, up the stairs, of course, one of the policemen, on the way arresting me, one of the policemen putting me in his book. Well, that sounds pretty definitive. And he said, then it got to the point where the police told me that if I didn't switch off the power to the amplifiers, they would arrest the Beatles and take them down to the police station, which must have been when he switched things off and got those dirty stairs, right? He said, I felt that this would have been a silly thing to let happen. And making an effort to keep the peace, I switched off the power, starting with George's amplifier. Just as they were about to break into a new number, George got right cob. <laughs> this is Britishism, right? <laughs> right. George Light Cobb on and turned around, demanding to know what the fuck are you playing at? <laughs> the amp on again. They played their last number and decided that they had pushed the filming to its limits and finished. Paul, being the perfect public relations man that he is, apologized profusely to the police and got me off the hook. There was an interview with the with the main cop, and they out and out asked him, "Well, did you have authority to?" either stop the show or arrest the Beatles. And he came right out and said, no. Oh, you know, it was funny when he said, uh, 30 complaints in the last 10 minutes. You know, I thought, and maybe this is just me speaking in 2022 and not with the way one would think or act 
in England in 1969. But I thought, show me those complaints. Really? You've got that many. We've barely been on. This show's barely been on. They've only been up there 20 minutes and you've got 30 complaints. What an even number that is. I need to see those. They've got five phones. (laughs) Well, I mean, somebody uh, actually, it maybe was Peter Brown who said that, you know, there were like two or three real complaints. The rest of them actually came from within Apple. Now, you want to believe that or not? Maybe. You know, Mal had worked pretty hard to get a helicopter so that they could do some aerial stuff, but they couldn't get permission. And they still got some really great shots. Although I want to know, where's that closed circuit footage, if there's any of it around? I think we'd have to look to Mr. Jackson. I'm ready for the 50 hours of uh, unused footage. And this is where we plug the Disney effort. You know, the the whole idea of releasing that footage uh, is a business decision by Disney because it's all been reconstructed by Peter Jackson. He says all 60 hours. So if we as fans contact Disney and say, release it. We'll buy it. Tell you what, I'm not convinced that this extended cut conversation is over because it will depend on how just look, look, it's all going to be driven by money because everything is, if Disney, if the reaction to the Thanksgiving thing, which obviously is, is going to be on the, you know, after Thanksgiving, it's not just, it's going to stay on the streaming thing. If the reaction to that is sufficient and the fans go nuts enough, and maybe even if the normal length Blu-ray comes out and it sells incredibly well, if Disney sniffed that there's profit to be made by an extended cut, they're going to come knocking on the door and say, oh, Peter, can we, you know, we, we said there's no there's no market, but we think it might be a good idea if, if we did one now. That, I mean, Disney will be driven by the market. They'll be driven by, they, they say, and they may well be true. I mean, I'm not saying they're wrong. They say that nobody buys extended cuts. There's no market. They don't do extended cuts of, of any of their Marvel films or anything else. Um, but if if they sniff that that in the case of the Beatles there might be an exception and an extended cut may do reasonably good sales maybe for next Christmas or you know time it for some timing or something then they, they they'll be just as capable of ch- changing their mind so uh, it'll depend on the reception of, of this and maybe the sales of the of whatever whenever this Blu-ray the normal Blu-ray comes out but I don't think the extended cut conversation is shut down but it's it, it is at the moment but i kind of i just like michael lindsey hogg i employed my own countermeasures by, by checking another two two hours in there so i mean it's not well, well I, there's still more i mean i i could you know i could you could probably have another couple of hours in there of good stuff without you know a problem really well, you know what let me i know how you package this you get a box i mean a wooden box Maybe made out of uh, some of those planks that Mal had brought the carpenters in to put on the roof. Uh, And then throw in some gnomes, right? (laughs) And I think for $1,000, you can buy the other 50 hours. Well, that's cheap. (laughs) Well, okay, so I'd go higher, but can't we try to get them to do 1000 well, I mean, the bootleggers have been doing that for all these years. And we remember the time when we were picking up 30 days for like four or 500 bucks. True. So, you know, why not release it legitimately like that? Let's start that commercial bonanza. It all began right here. There you go. <laughs> and if you come to our Facebook group, we do have the addresses for both Apple, Apple core, not the other Apple. The other Apple could afford to do anything they wanted to, but well, Disney is in the way. Yes. <laughs> Can it, are, are the diaries written at the time, or are these narratives that he's gone back to remember? 
He's written most of them at night when he would be done with whatever the duty was. So most of them, from what I can tell, and I discover new things about them all the time, but from what I can tell, they're pretty contemporaneous. Now, what will happen is occasionally they'll realize, and I mean they, because it, it you know, there's some writing in there is, uh, here's an exclusive, not just Mal's. So occasionally, I think he'll realize something significant, and a couple of days later, he'll write something down. But for the most part, it's contemporaneous. Does it run the whole period? It runs from when he first went down to the cavern all the way up through 75, 76, or when does it stop? So my wife and I were actually talking about this last night, and the answer is yes and yes and no and no, (laughs) if I can make that as elliptical as possible. So (laughs) the diaries are not a perfect line. And they don't start till 63 because Mal wants to start recording what's going on with his son, Gary. And then he quickly realizes maybe this Beatle thing is going to be the story because there's the windscreen incident, et cetera. So it's not a perfect contiguous line. But when you don't have, say, a diary for a particular period, he's keeping a notebook. So there's a notebook, for example, for 1975, that's about 150 pages of memories and and that sort of thing. So it actually changes. It's not consistent. So in other words, the best way to think about how you tell a story like this is it's a composite. You've got the diaries, you have manuscripts, you have notebooks. I even have audio. There's all sorts of material that sort of comes together. And if you bring it together, then you have the composite, more complete picture. But it's not a perfect contiguous line. You have to be willing and ready to move from one document to the other to piece the story together. Because obviously, this guy had an enormously busy life. It changed all the time. There were periods when he's on the road. There are periods when he's doing nothing but being in a studio at their beck and call. And then there are periods when... He's out scouting for Apple talent, right? So his life is in a constant kind of flux. Right. He goes out to California where he's working, you know, on solo records, principally by George, Ringo, and John. And so during that period, he's, (laughs) let's face it, then and now you're battling the freeways. (laughs) You're trying to get around town. So he's, he's got this weird kind of, or not weird at all, but understandable kind of flux that takes place with his life. Right. Um, Well, this is an interesting aspect, and uh, he only works for Beatles and company. So Mal and Neil were never employees of Apple, never employees of NIMS. They only worked for John, Paul, George, and Ringo. They worked for Beatles and company. And hence, they were never paid by anybody except for the principals, their client. They served at the pleasure of the Beatles themselves. So how did the diaries finally get discovered? I mean, we know they were lost for a long period of time. There's the story that someone contacted Yoko when a publishing house was moving offices or something. Is that the way it actually went? There's some truth to that. It's a very long and involved story. I only just pieced together last weekend. I spoke to the guy who brought the materials from California to New York. What's interesting is they moved through many hands during that long period. And uh, I will say Yoko's the hero. When she is told about this, she moves on it fast. And Apple has it across the Atlantic, right in the hands of Neil, who takes it to the widow. It's pretty fast at that point. But I have a lot more to say about that. As we approach. Uh, It's really, it's uh, to me, it's, 
it's fa- it's absolutely fascinating the custody of this material and fortunately the archive is so enormous that I have almost all the correspondence from lawyers and agents and people talking about what they're going to do with this stuff. You know, it's uh, wow. Uh, you combine that with Brian's archive, we really have a pretty solid paper trail of the whole thing. Well, we really do, and actually, a lot of Brian's archive is duplicated in Mal's because Brian would uh, typically pass a lot of his documents right to Mal to execute. So. Beatles itineraries, letters from promoters in the United States. It, it's it's pretty overwhelming, really. It's a mountain of paper. And then not to be morbid, did they finally recover Mal's remains? There's the famous story about John Lennon claiming, oh, he ended up in the dead letter office. Yeah, they were they were only lost for maybe two weeks, I guess. It wasn't a big, long period of time. That was never made clear to me in anybody's book. You know, most of the details are even, even much of the Wikipedia. Wikipedia! Ed is incorrect. No, they were on a shelf at Heathrow. The urn, I guess, was on a shelf at Heathrow, and uh, it was recovered pretty quickly. Well, well, that's good. But it's a funny story, so it has lasted. <laughs> it is, and, you know, it's the kind of comedy, right, we associate with John, who was absolutely devastated by what happened. Yoko uh, later told Lily Evans just how John was just devastated, just broke into tears, was just torn up about Mal. Mm. My dad, Mal Evans, was their road manager in August 1963 full time. And they only ever had two, which was Neil and my dad. George was very much my dad's first intimate contact with the group and the others came on board. Uh, George used to come round and see my mum occasionally while she was ironing or whatever. Uh, it wasn't all rock and roll at that point, and he had a bit of a crush on my mum. Did he get permission uh, from all four to write this book? Or um, We have uh, the original letters. There were four letters um, that were sent, I believe, around the summer of 75, maybe the spring, because Mal didn't want to move forward with this project unless he had permission. That's correct. Well, I mean, that's the thing about the love you make. It still feels kind of like a betrayal of them. You know, Peter Brown telling these stories. Yeah, I don't know that people will feel the same way about this. It'll be interesting to see because what's really fascinating is just how much Mal lays himself bare in this. It's really the story of a fan in a way, one who loves them so much that he will give up everything, including huge swaths of his selfhood. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, with all his work for the Beatles, did he have time to be a family man? (sighs) Well, that's a very smart inference. And yes and no. You know, he had two children in Liverpool. They moved to London in 1967. But by then, Mal is essentially living in, you know, at Three Abbey Road, (laughs) right? So at that point... He's gone for huge periods of time. Yeah. Mal, what was the name of that shoe shop somebody said is in Bond Street, a good one? Do you know a sh- good shoe shop near? There's a yeah, lot of shoe shops in uh, Bond Street. Yeah, but I just want, you know, like ordinary black leather shoes, just that I never get any, you know, because I'm never in shoe shops. Do you want me to bring them both over? <clears throat> if you could con somebody into coming with, you know, a selection of black slip-on size eights. Yeah, okay. Mal in Get Back, everyone watching that film comes out of it with, oh, well, Mal was a really cool guy. 
Kenny does everything, right? He's, you know, cleaning up. He's making food. He's working on instruments. He's helping out with the lyric. The whole film is a great illustration on on how they worked as a group. But the part where Mal is leaning on the piano and they're working on a lyric, and they are working on a lyric. I mean, certainly Paul is driving it, but Mal has suggestions, and I can see how his influence in other songs that they created was done. Yeah, you know, Mal sometimes gets a kind of, you know, he's treated perhaps because of his size as a kind of an oaf, but he actually spent a lot of his time on planes and sitting in the studio, you know, in downtime reading. So he really had great facility with language. It's not a surprise that he would be valuable that way. Well, and the stories that we've gotten, I mean, the whole salt and pepper turning into Sergeant Pepper, that's just such a glib little story. And it doesn't represent... Mal's intellect in any way. Well, it's not true. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, Mal's son and I, we speak for a few hours each week. And when we first talked about that, we had just gone over all of Mal's favorite meals because he was a man who liked a good meal. <laughs> um, even in his early years when he was incredibly fit, he just loved a good meal. <laughs> and Gary said, don't you think my dad knew what S&P stood for? <laughs> And I said, Gary, I do. (laughs) So we've got some really good material on that coming. (laughs) Again, the the great bit is like, I'm going on a a diet where I'm not eating anything because, well, when I get out of the bath, I don't like what I see. (laughs) That was a real good bit. So did Mal go shoe shopping? uh, Or in general, was he the one who went out and picked out the Beatles clothes when they weren't shopping for themselves? There's no doubt he worked on wardrobe. I've had many wonderful interviews with music shopkeepers who work with Mal to get the instruments and to keep the right supply of the plectrums that John liked to use. Mal really became highly skilled at, what's the phrase? Mark Lewison called him a man of all trades. (laughs) And I kind of like that. That's really what he became. He learned how, after getting yelled at a lot, (laughs) um, he really learned how to sort of be like Radar O'Reilly, right? Exactly. A lot of lives depend on me doing my job, and I'm the only one around here who can. Bass strings, and there they are. He's handing them to Paul, right? You know. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, really my introduction to Mal was when I read Hunter Davies' book. And there's a moment that struck me when John apparently said, socks, Mal. And then Mal shows up with a bag of socks the next session. Yeah. It's real. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I like the role of people like Mal and Neil and even Brian, although, you know, he could be flashy and be out there. But they're all really, and you can throw in several other folks too, they're the invisible people who help make all this happen. The reason why these four guys could create over just over seven years this lasting art is because they had folks who, in a lot of ways, mothered them, who were there ready with the socks, ready with the guitar strings. You know, Neil doing everything he could to try to soften the amount of transit they had to experience on the tours or Mal trying to make sure they had those meals in the studio so they could work till 4 a.m. 
because they were on to something and to something very, very important, as we know, and why we have great podcasts like this one. That's the magic, I think, of all those invisible people. George Martin, right? The hours he spent, let's just pick on one song, scoring I Am The Walrus, a song he didn't even like at first, and just goes to town on that thing, right? And creates a masterwork of an orchestration. So these are all the invisible people who help make this thing happen. We may not remember them uh, in quite the same way in decades. Well, we do. (laughs) Well, we do. And the future podcasters, right, Will? But you know what I'm saying. I mean, it's essential in the same way that a great company is a collection of staff assistants and janitors and people who make life possible. Now, Mal's a lot more than a janitor, but at one point, When you look at the early 70s, Mal, with maybe the exception of George Harrison, is working more with Apple artists than anybody. He's doing all the correspondence. He's meeting them when nobody else has time for them. You know the work he does with Badfinger and Splinter, and he takes Jackie Lomax on an American tour. He's just busting a gut for Apple, which is funny, right? When he's briefly fired, he and Neil by Alan Klein and... The Beatles have to inform Alan that he can't fire Neil and Mal. <laughs> right. <laughs> they don't work for him. <laughs> so, incidentally, when Paul says that they had booked the Royal Albert Hall, who within Apple actually booked the Royal Albert Hall in September of 1968? Do we know? That's a question we had, and you might have some better insight on that than we do. Yeah, Albert Hall or the Roundhouse? Well, it became the Roundhouse, but in the NME on September the 14th, he actually says that they're going to play at the Albert Hall. And it was the Albert Hall for a month, two months' time until it became the Roundhouse. I would like to say at this point, I believe it's Neil who does that. Because Neil really tried to call the shots on what they would do in that kind of regard. But I'm still looking into that. But I think that's Neil. That makes sense. Interesting. Because he's the guy who really does a lot of thinking about where they're going to be, how they're going to get there, what they're scheduled to do. Although, of course, their duties overlap. You know, it's Mal who sets up Twickenham for the Hey Jude revolution shoot in the cache of materials. I have all of the uh, examples and some of the actual tickets that he handed out to people to be able to attend. Wow. Many of them are handwritten that Mal made. <laughs> So he would have been doing that for this show if they had gotten that far within Twickenham. Oh, maybe so. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay, would ahead. you say that um, since you said, you know, Mal worked pretty extensively with uh, Ringo George and John, that obviously is not Paul. Was Paul closer to Neil? Oh, no. Paul was much closer to Mal. Really? And uh, I believe really would would have been again, you know, unfortunately, we know how this story ends. but. Right. When you go back and look at those crucial months in 1970, March and April, and then later when Paul is going to sue to dissolve the partnership, he's really put up a wall. And even though Mal had never taken sides and really had served them all, you know, giving all of his blood, sweat and tears to all of them, Paul really was alone on one side of that wall. And by virtue of just the natural situation that was emerging, Mal was on the other. Right. And Mal spent a good bit, as you might imagine, of 1970 when he wasn't working with Badfinger, stage managing all things from his past for George. He was there with Kevin Harrington and until Kevin, um, and I had a delightful conversation with him about this, when Kevin goes off with Derek and the Dominoes, <laughs> Kevin Harrington's maiden tour as a roadie is the Derek wow. and the Dominoes. 
tour, I told him, I said, that's your book. That's the book you write. Because it was a hellion of a tour, right? I mean, everything that happened. There were egg fights in kitchens, you know, all manner of drug and disarray. And (laughs) the one scene that Kevin talks about when they're all sitting in a, a car, what is it, outside of Chicago or something, and they're freezing and nobody knows who they are and they hear my sweet Lord on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and just, you know, the crushing irony of it all. <laughs> right. <laughs> what we were talking about before, that's one thing that Peter Jackson does real well. He shows us all these people behind the scenes and how they all serve the Beatles in making this thing happen. That's right. And one of the scenes that was a big eye opener for me and did serve the narrative well, right before the narrative wasn't served well, but it was a crucial moment. We all knew Dick James was there on the morning of January 10th, but it sure is different seeing him, right? He's exuding all of this money and power. And when you hear Ringo say, hey, George, what are you going to do with your one half of 1%, right? That is powerful stuff. I mean, that financial line being drawn and here's this priggish guy just talking about this in an oily, oily way. This is a very good list. That's the entire catalogue up to 65. All of, all of yeah. these are the others. Yeah. yeah. Is this the catalogue that's just gone on sale? It's the one we just bought. Oh, you bought it? Oh, yeah. great. Yeah, Northern Souls. Which includes Paul and John. And I think to just a small... About... What are you talking about, just a about... Nothing, no. No comment. Very substantially, sir. Yes, right, okay. <laughs> we'll have a lunch on it. Dick James would become so toxic that even a few years from then, George Martin, who had brought him in and uh, usurped EMI's Ardmore and Beachwood as the publishing outlet, George Martin was no longer speaking to Dick James. They had a huge falling out in the early 70s. Right. So right around this time, Paul had started his own publishing company separate from Northern. Do we know anything much about what Paul was thinking at that point in time? Well, he's thinking for himself, right? (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, he's buying up shares. Uh, He, you know, he's got a lot of compunction, if you think about it, to say, let's bring in my new in-laws, right? That's pretty brash. Especially Uh, especially after the conversations that Paul and John have about the way Paul is. Yeah, that's right. And, (laughs) of course, another wonderful thing about the documentary or or the way that – Peter Jackson left it in the lines and the margins about like Glenn Johns. You be careful with Alan Klein, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. it's really quite impressive. And, and, you know, that's pretty sage like from Glenn Johns. He's a young guy there, you know, he's kind of the hot producer of the moment, but that's a pretty shrewd thing to say. And of course, as history tells us, he was right. He was right. And, and you know, to say, I don't know how he talks to people like you because you're you. That was pretty- oh, John. We'll find out. Yeah. Yeah, you get the feeling that there was something more going on behind the scenes of the circus that he just doesn't really want to tell John about. Mal had an extensive um, button collection, and uh, Gary and I have been going through it to pick some illustrations. And sure enough, one of them is the Beware of Abco button. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, lovely. Although I still don't know why George was singing that in 1970. He and Klein were buddies at that point. At least nominally. I think it was nominal. And, uh, you know, George, remember what he said at the time. You know, people keep telling me I'm a millionaire. But when I say, can I see the money, they never want to show it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. 
Well, you know, and, and Ringo talks about that they recognize that he's a con man, but he's a con man working for them. Yeah. Now, of course, George, as we know, will be harmed later, right? Handmade films. So I still can't believe that Klein had the gall to buy out Bright Tunes music just to keep the lawsuit going. Yeah. I have a friend in the city who is a Broadway promoter and he worked with Klein in Klein's later years. He told me a story about when Alan invited him down to his office. And he, so he goes over, I think it was in Midtown or whatever. And it was one of these things that had like exterior doors. So you had to keep going into more doors with cameras looking at you, I guess, to make sure that you weren't going to like whack Alan or something. <laughs> <laughs> because they were out there. Sure. Yeah, I can, probably. <laughs> so uh, as far as the get back goes, George Martin was pretty consistent through the Twiggin' Obsessions, he seemed to be in and out, but as much out as in. Uh, you know, he'd show up and he'd talk, and he would be on camera periodically, but he wasn't there all the time. Wasn't it a wonderful scene, and again, I'd heard it before, but it was wonderful to see it, where they're discussing Octopus's garden with Ringo, and George is part of that. That's such a darling scene. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of my point, is that not only do things change between the four Beatles, when they hit Apple, George Martin seems to be in a much better place. Again, with the exception of the one moment which you know where he's lying on the carpet reading the newspaper. Reminds me of him sitting behind the board eating his Toblerone <laughs> at EMI. You know, George, he is in a good place, but he's under an incredible amount of pressure at this point because, you know, he started this business and... It was very important for Sir George to have that studio on Oxford Street right at Piccadilly Circus. And that was very expensive then. It's expensive now. He was putting a lot of money just into rent. He was outfitting that place with state-of-the-art technology. And he and his partners, you know, they needed to invoice the Beatles. Let's just put it that way. You know, it was really tight. I've talked to people who knew George around that time and how stressed he would get because they were outlaying a lot of money they just didn't have. And it was his to lose sink or swim, right? Right. The scene that really got my eye was when they started complaining about the sound. And he just came out and solved that. It was like, well, you've got your mics pointed all these weird directions. And I think that for me, it was like, well, there's definitely some hands-on here that George Martin has well again he's the hero of that he's the guy who when magic alex goes balls up george knows what to do he gets right. in there and he's a problem solver that saturday he was at Scylla black's wedding hmm. he was just chuffed he felt good again and it had you saw the reasons why in this documentary he liked to be of use and he was suddenly uh, of use to these guys Although, as Giles likes to point out, he was conceived on one of those evenings, and, and he thinks he knows which morning that was when you see George Martin coming in with this big smile on his face. Okay, I, I think I want to know less about that. <laughs> <laughs> but that was eight months before, and, and I think I kind of agree with him. Well, there, there's a couple days there where George Martin does seem pretty happy. Well, the math works, you know. I mean, he was born on John Lennon's birthday, right? Yep. 1969. So that's why I say, you know, that is probably when he was conceived was sometime during that month. <laughs> well, the running line between Ed and I have has been for a while, 
I think that George Martin was producing this. Huh. Um, I think so. I think Paul McCartney was producing it. Well, yeah. There's a couple of times. There's one scene where they're all talking about, I forget which song it is, maybe two of us. They're in their circle. And Paul talks about, I don't know how to produce this. I don't know how to produce the Beatles. I, you know, I don't know who does. Nobody can produce Nobody the Beatles. Nobody can produce the Beatles. And sitting right behind him is George Martin. That's great. <laughs> and when I listen to the album, it's not that different from a George Martin production. I mean, taking out Phil Spector's stuff, but the quality. I have to disagree with that. You don't think I, the quality uh, yeah. of it is up to the, the standards? No, not even when you listen to it and it's pure recordings. I think that, no, I don't think so at all. It's ragged. I, I don't think it's a, it's a George Martin production. George was also, remember, pretty insulted by John Lennon, who said no jiggery pokery. Remember that whole business? Oh, yeah. And uh, he intended to live with that. So in any event, I, I was just about to ask you guys this question, and I think it comes from the one you're asking. But imagine this if they make this record at Abbey Road. You know, they may complain about the toilet paper. They may complain about the eight track desk not being there, although now it is, right? Because they put it in in November 68. So the uh, TG12345 is in Abbey Road Studio 2 when they're doing all these machinations at Twickenham and, and at Apple. This is where they made their greatest art. I think you would have heard very different songs if they were recorded in that room with that desk. I imagine you would have seen George Martin scoring it and it probably would have morphed into a different album. I agree with that. <laughs> I think it would have been a better album. I love the thing. It, and it's such a crucial part of their history. All of these things we know are true, but you know, if they do this thing at the friendly confines, I think you've got a different experience and a different recording. The warmth of that room is so much different. And you know, in that basement, <laughs> even without the shenanigans of Magic Alex is, is not ideal. I guess the way my ear hears it is I'll reference Harrison, who's like, the art is because we do it. And how we do it is the art. So the fact that the recordings came out that way is what they did. Yes, George Martin would have totally changed it. It would have been a different album at Abbey Road. I'm going to disagree with George there a little bit. And he would say things like that. And it almost mitigates the myriad other factors that went into their achievement, that it wasn't just them sitting down and playing together, right? Conditions were important. Access to other parts of their lives, which were made possible by people like Mal and Neil, right? right. Those things mattered. And I don't think they could simply sit down and be by virtue of being them, make it all happen. And John Curlander has described to me and others what Phil Spector said when he came into the studio to work and how he instructed him to manipulate the dials and the faders and everything. And that is him making the recording sound different, right? right. When he did his post-production. So I don't think it just happens when they sit down. The energy that they create, of course, is unique. And their fusion is like no other. They're the outlier. I think they're history's greatest outlier. You know, trying to compare anything to them is a waste of time. Totally. So, yeah, they're the art in that sense. But I think that mitigates, you know, what a George Martin does. It happened in Houston, actually, when I visited with you several years ago, Ed, when uh, mm -hmm. I, I went to the, uh, what was the record store? 
Cactus. Yeah, it was at Cactus, the record store of our youth, of course. <laughs> and this one woman said to me, you know, George Martin's wonderful, but they didn't need him. Don't you think all the recordings, they would have been the same? <laughs> wow. No. <laughs> well, no, they wouldn't, right? They absolutely wouldn't. And you gave a great example a moment ago, right? The microphones, you know, hey guys, what about this? Or there would be times when Jeff Emmerich wouldn't say anything all day. And then he'd say, let's do this. And it would change the whole recording fundamentally, right? <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of magic in that, but people do tend to forget the invisible people who help make them happen. Paul McCartney wouldn't like this, but I think one of the biggest solutions to their interpersonal dilemmas might have been achieved if they'd just given songwriting credit to all four of them on every song like Coldplay. Now, again, not trying to compare them to Coldplay, although Coldplay would love that, but Coldplay gives full credit to all of their members on every song. Well, that actually coheres rather nicely with the remark you decided from George Harrison, right? I mean, George does things to those songs that make them irrevocably different. Ringo with the wonderful drum rumble at the beginning of Come Together. It's not the same song without that. Nobody's given him credit. Right. Certainly a different business at that point. Sure. But, you know, he still wouldn't be getting the mechanical royalty today. So, you know, right. I think that stuff's really important when you think about that that way. And we came so incredibly close to it actually being Lennon-McCartney-Harrison. I mean, you know, Ringo would have been fine as long as he got some significant share. But, I mean, you know, John and Paul said, no, we want to write a swimming pool for ourselves. Sure. And, you know, you just said about how the business was different that then. One thing that was different, but it's still a little bit the same as the myth of the solitary author, right? You know, the great solitary genius working by candlelight late into the night, the one person who writes the book, Bronte, right? A Bronte sister working and toiling away in private. It's just not like that. Somebody edited those manuscripts. Her sisters made remarks about them. Corporate authorship is how most of this stuff, whatever this stuff is, happens. My wife is uh, in Pennsylvania right now. She took her computer and she's editing some of the hundreds of hours of interviews that I conducted for this. She has helped to write this book, right? I don't know if that's authorship, but it's pretty damn close, you know, and without that, it would take me months longer to be able to do anything. So I love watching productions like uh, the one that we've been gifted with here because we can see in real time all of the different elements that are going into making something happen. Michael Lindsay Hogg, I love watching him. Did you guys enjoy watching him in the show? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you know, him and his big cigar. He comes off a little bit more buffoonish than he probably should, but that may be just our interpretation of what we see on film. He read my piece in Salon and called me up, and it was a great conversation because he was doing anything he could to try to get those guys to just get it in gear. <laughs> he was willing to make a bit of a buffoon of himself. I love the shot when Mal is lifting him up onto the highest point on the roof, right. and he, ne he never breaks stride with his stogie. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it just stays in his mouth. Yeah. You know what? He has great cigar control. <laughs> Well, I mean, he wrote that whole piece for a cigar aficionado recently. Well, yeah, he, as far as I'm concerned, he's the expert. Had they never really mentioned Billy Preston to George Martin before? Now, maybe because it's on camera, but it, it really seems like that was the first time they'd ever even brought him up is when Billy comes strolling in that afternoon. And if I have an issue with the whole business, it's kind of that. 
I felt like the narrative was too fluid in places. You know, they had a long history with Billy and Billy was there to reminisce. You know, they'd known him when he was 16. Mal met him when Billy was 16, when he was with little Richard. They had known him for a long time. I think we could have used a little bit better narrative transition around the George quitting scene, which people are still connecting back two days earlier with Paul. And it just doesn't hold any water. And of course, George has a massive personal crisis unfolding on the side. And so later when Patty comes in to give George that sort of recuperative truce of a kiss, we don't really understand, unless you do a little outside reading, why that's so important. Another piece of TMI, I contend that George walked out because of the situation with Patty and Charlotte and, well, no need to go where that was going. Well, perhaps. I mean, but, you you know, there's no doubt that we know the things that John had been egging and needling him about all day, which we didn't get to see some of those scenes. I mean, there's no doubt that in the morning he had to hear Dick James talking about how much money he wasn't making, and then he's got the usual second-class Beatles stuff happening at lunch. And I think a lot of people would quit. Plus, George had some business to take care of at home. (laughs) Patty was gone, and he had to get rid of the French girl, as Patty liked to call her. Yeah, sounds like something in a a Noel Coward play. Exit, French girl left or something. Definitely one of those uh, sex farces where one person is coming in one door and one's going out the other. Yeah, that sounds like a rough show. (laughs) (laughs) i'm not really sure of the narrative anyway i mean as i understand it you know he quit and then that that was the friday morning and then he went to liverpool on the monday because john went out to see him right john and yoko had lunch or brunch with them on the saturday and then the beetle meeting was on the sunday and then on monday is when they get back together then they all decide oh we're gonna go out to george's And it's like, well, George isn't there. But Patty was still home with her folks. Well, not her folks, but... Yeah, no, that was a messed up. Whatever family Patty was with was was where she was at the time. I mean, she had left early on in the sessions on like day one or day two. Yeah, I think she had good cause. (laughs) Yeah, so... To Billy, they describe George Martin as being their A&R man. It's like, yeah. really? That's the best description you can come up for George Martin? That was the one part where I thought, okay, well, there is something different here. Because he'd been their producer for quite some time. Right, although his title with Parlophone was he was A&R head. So that was until September 65. Right. You know, and the term producer was still morphing. I mean, it was on records at this point, but... So you don't think uh, it was a thing, a a non-naming him as a producer? I don't. It's hard to say. Yeah. And George Martin, of course, has always said that Let It Be should have been credited as being produced by George Martin and overproduced by Phil Spector. So he certainly thought at some point that he was the producer of the project yeah that's true he made quite a meal out of that (laughs) it's a good line yeah so you know my interest has been what happened why he was removed as being producer and what happened as the sessions went on because chris thomas took over for a while well chris was george's protege and his assistant so george left a note with chris that said i'm going out for a while you're in charge And, uh, of course, he walked right into the Beatles who said, oh, really? (laughs) You know, Um, but he was young enough and he's a hip guy. If you've ever met him, he was you met him right at the conference. At Monmouth. Yeah, Yeah, he's wonderful. And he won them over and he had a blast working on it. But there were a number of factors going into what's going on with George. George got a lot of heat 
when uh, Time Magazine ran their big edition on him as being the genius behind the Beatles. Fall of 1967, they noticed that. Yeah, because they read a lot about themselves. Yeah, but they loved to read their own notices, and they didn't like that. They didn't like George taking off for three weeks during this mammoth project, the double album, as they called it, that they're trying to bring in. You know, they didn't like, perhaps, that he wasn't there at Twickenham for the Hadrian Revolution shoot. So he's kind of shirking his responsibilities with his most important client. If Paul did, as Glenn Johns has suggested and George Martin believed, took Glenn Johns aside and said, you're the man on this, you're helming this or whatever, it wouldn't be out of character for him. Because remember, Paul, when he's not even famous, in 19, uh, I guess, 61, right after Brian Epstein has discovered them, stages a diva moment, right? When he won't get out of the bathtub. <laughs> right. the meeting. You know, so it's kind of a passive aggressive thing that perhaps he would do. But we'll know in a decade when Mark publishes his book. <laughs> I know he has chapter and verse on this, and and I'm very thankful to him because he helped me go in the right direction on some of these aspects. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that for sure. So how did they then get the extra equipment they needed to get things set up going from the basement to the rooftop? We were trying to figure out, did that cabling come from EMI, or, or where did all of that extra equipment come from? I'm not totally sure. I know that they had uh, various service units that Mal coordinated, like the folks who did the carpentry on the roof, because he and Kevin didn't do that. They were having a hell of a time just getting the instruments up. They had to take off the skylight to be able to get the bass amp up and Billy's keyboard because it was too big. And Michael Lindsay Hogg explained to me that the elevator that you would take on that side of the building was like a two-person elevator. <laughs> so it was one of those, only England can have these very tight kind of elevators. The one the sergeant went up in. Yes. The one that Debbie said, go, go up to the fourth floor, but don't go on the roof. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was a private house at one point, wasn't it? I can Sav- imagine. Savile Row. Yeah. So it didn't have a commercial elevator. It was just... Yeah, no, there's no giant freight elevator that... If you've ever been to like the Power Station or, you know, Electric Lady Studios in New York City, they have these giant freight elevators. A band can fit like everything they've got. Right. And then some on one of those. Well, I mean, if it had been even just five or ten years later, they would have had cranes to lift everything up onto the roof for them. That's right. It just seems odd that they've got to run everything from the basement all the way up the stairs onto the roof. No wireless then. That's a hell of a lot of cabling. Absolutely. And I do not have chapter and verse on that. Okay. I'll see what I can get. I will be there soon in the book, and uh, I'll see what I can find on that. That's a great question because... At some level, I'll, I mean, I'll ask Kevin. He, he probably knows. Granted, they had a huge amount of cabling already because since there was no patch bay, they had to run it out of the control room, out and down the hallway, around back into the studio. But that still probably wouldn't have been a, enough to go up four floors. No, I don't think so. But isn't that hilarious? I yeah. mean, in its own stupid way. <laughs> God. <laughs> I was uh, also interested to hear that both Paul and George Martin kind of discussed strings on Long Winding Road, which strings and brass. Yeah, which was totally. It was like that's not the project. <laughs> I like what Barm and Hewson came up with for that. I don't know that Phil mixed it right. Actually, of all the recordings 
on the new uh, the new version, the, the recent box set. I do like how Giles sort of reframed some of the instrumentation there. Yes. Well, it finally sounds like a single recording. You know, the Spectre versions have always sound like, well, there's the Beatle recording underneath, and then there's all this stuff pasted on top of it. That's well said, Ed, because as you know, George was so masterful at being able to make it sound like they were sitting right there with the orchestra right. as one band. That's a nifty thing to be able to do. You know, it's, it takes a lot of painstaking work, particularly back in those pre-digital days. And you said it, you know, Phil's recordings would sound like the orchestra was recorded in another century, much less the same album. Yeah, the, the arrangements are, are good. It's just the way they sit in the song, particularly the chorus, is just overwhelming. As I've gotten older and all of us go back, you know, 40, 50 years now with this music, depending on your Beatles generation, but I've really come to deeply dislike the version of Across the Universe that was originally included on Let It Be. I don't like the slowed down vocal annoys me. I really do not like that orchestration. No. It just is too precious for a song that has such incredible poetry. In 2003, when we were gifted with that version on Let It Be Naked, to me, that's the go-to. It just mesmerizes me. You get pure version of John's voice, the guitar, and you can revel in the language because it's amazing language. Yes. It was done two or three different ways. The same basic recording, but different overdubs. And they're all really good. But when it came to Spectre's editions... It you know, really lessened that song. Yeah. And look, I'm talking about a, an evolution of experience. I love the damn thing in 1975, right? I couldn't get enough of it. But, you know, as you learn more and you discover more about what John's voice was really capable of, what he was capable of as a songwriter. I mean, I would rather listen, and I like it, to Fiona Apple's version if I'm going to listen to that version than give me Fiona. You know, I'll go there. Right. In the film, when they have to bring out the acetate to play for John because he doesn't remember any of it. Right. <laughs> that sounds like him. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the song was, you know, almost a year old. Yeah, it was back in February of 68. So it's, and these were clearly guys who looked forward and not backwards for the most part. My students love the fact that they're rehearsing new material. They just made the Dan White album. They have new material. I mean, a band today would tour that album for three years. Yeah. Or if not five, right? (laughs) You know, the whole idea that they would say, we're going to do a concert and we're going to do songs from the White Album. And then they show up and go, no, let's just write. And let's face it, what that is betraying is the fact that that's what they want to do. They love doing that. They want to write new stuff. (laughs) They already did back in the USSR. Yeah. Paul's not going to figure out that's a great live tune for a long time yet. Well, the fact that they hadn't played in almost three years as a band, you know, they did recordings. And you're being generous there because John Lennon has said, and and now that I've listened to enough of those shows, I believe him, that they haven't been the Beatles since 1962. <laughs> as he said, when they came back from Hamburg the last time, they were the best band in the world. Right. You know, they could do anything. And of course, between then and the Palladium show in October 1963, 
their sound just gets obliterated by hysteria. We just put out a show on the first year of the BBC recordings. Those are amazing. And for the most part, those are all live recordings. Right. In those little theaters, right? But you know, the fact that they're sitting in the studio playing live, there's a point when George Martin is just saying, hey, you're doing this. This, You know, you could keep going. You know, there was an excitement for what they were doing. The fact that they were playing together and they were together as a band energized everybody. Billy Preston, as Texas Monthly told us a month ago, really was the Texan that saved the Beatles. (laughs) I saw that. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that history has treated Billy well because his own past, it's a checkered one, obviously. It's difficult. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know what else to say about it, but it's been interesting to see him in this kind of revivified light here in, you know, 2021, 2022. One of the things I was surprised about was in, in the original film, let it be in spite of the fact that on two different songs, Billy clearly takes a lead. There's no footage of him. It's never on Billy. And for the most part, as far as the rooftop concert is concerned, that's true as well. Billy's just not shown that much. You see him when the camera's directly on Paul, and as you pointed out, the only other time we really see Billy is when the camera is instructed to turn around when the cops show up on the roof. Right, (laughs) That's the only solo shot we get of Billy in the whole film. And I'm convinced that if Peter Jackson would have had that footage of Billy playing, he would have put it in. So it's clearly not there. So I think that Michael Lindsay Hogg was totally focused on the four musicians that were the Beatles and didn't consider Billy as being part of that. Right. That sounds like a good summation to me. All right. Great. Thanks, Ken. This has been a whole lot of fun. I mean, this has been as good as we'd hoped it would be as far as a conversation. Well, you've got debut reading. Debut material here. Yeah. <laughs> Living the Beatles legend or 200 miles to go. <laughs> Are you on schedule? I am on schedule. Yeah. No, I'm cooking. I'm having a lot of fun, Yeah, but it's a challenge. I've never had this much material before to be able to build a life out of. Right. And so at times even though I do a lot of planning, a kind of natural thing happens where you'll forget one little tidbit and then it's kind of fun, but irritating to go sew it back in, you know, to the place where it belongs. Well, it makes you appreciate what Mark did between the author's version and the main version of tune in where all the details are and then where he figured out what he could take out and not affect the story too badly. I've thought about that many times, about how painstaking that is to have to cut those words to be able to bring it back to that level. But, you know, thank goodness he's doing the work he's doing. It's just magic. And yeah. it's um, there's nothing like him. I've had the privilege of seeing him at the British Library when he's just at it. And I've told him many times, and I think I speak for all of us, we have the great joy of thinking deeply about them because of the work he was doing in the 80s. I don't know that we're having quite the same experience if it weren't for that first monumental book and then long before he undertook the biography. Just uh, oh, yeah. it's just the beginning of, of all this joy for all of us. We're, we're all so fortunate. His recording chronicles, that was like the best book in the world at the time. A masterwork, even though the one thing that he can't do is he's not a real good writer about music. Yeah. He tells the stories real well. but sure. and, and think about that book for a moment. You know, We knew the music. We knew that Let It Be was made before Abbey Road, and we knew the basics, but it gave us contours to this thing, right? 
that we simply Absolutely. didn't have before that. And it Absolutely. made all of this scholarship possible. I'm thrilled to be alive and at one point when all, all four Beatles were alive. And I'm glad to be alive when Mark Lewison's alive doing this work. I'm not sure how much more time I have, though. I hope he puts it out. <laughs> and I think we can all be glad that you're doing the work you're doing. Well, let's take it further then. We're all fortunate to be alive at the same time <laughs> as the queen of all. <laughs> Kid O'Toole, yeah. Kid O'Toole, who, who is a co-editor of your Beatles and fandom book. Uh, looking briefly here at the Amazon page, you know, scroll, scroll, scroll. Uh, in the last four years, uh, in addition to your academic books, you've given us uh, a Harrison Clapton book, John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in, in the Life. That's a really great book as well. Solid State, The Story of Abbey Road, the two-volume George Martin book, uh, Maximum Volume and Sound Pictures, which, as you told us last time you were on, you had originally wanted to be three volumes, but they wouldn't let you. Uh, the things I could have done with it. They just didn't think his solo years would sell, and I had several, about 500,000 more words of stuff, but oh well. I guess a solo year would be like America. Mahavishnu Orchestra. Have you seen America at all in the last few years? They actually take a break and they run a whole segment on George Martin, like a little video montage. So he clearly looms large in their legend. Yeah, I imagine. (laughs) All right. Well, I guess we'll have to have you back on once the first book, the picture book, is supposed to be out the end of this year, or is it the first of next? The first book is the biography. Oh, the biography is out first, and then the and then the picture book is out okay. next year. And that's all the diaries and all the manuscripts and the whole works. And so, um, I'll tell you, I'm working hard on it, and it's been a great project for graduate students, as you might imagine, as you know, the Academy Ed. Absolutely. So I actually was working with one student who is studying Mal's handwriting style right now because she is uh, actually transcribing that 150-page notebook. Very cool. Yeah, so the interesting projects for the the students here on the shore. So what is your planned schedule as far as release? The biography is due in a few months, and then it'll be in their hands. I think it'll probably be about the beginning of 23, and then the other one perhaps at the end of 23. Okay, so less than a year. That's pretty amazing. And by then, of course, I will be down hanging out with you in Houston. I've got to get back to the hometown. But unlike before, John does not live here in town. He's in Texas, but he's not here in town. <laughs> well, surely he would come by. Well, absolutely. Oh, okay. <laughs> absolutely. This has been a blast. So appreciate you being here. We'll be back next week with more. Not with Ken, but with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> talk, talk to you then. <laughs> Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. have to be respectful of, of people's decisions I'm, I, I, I can be persistent but I won't be brutally persistent I will respect when people say no we're not going to do it right now yeah. and there's no point in pressing that when they're ready they're ready yeah. 
and if it doesn't suit my timetable well okay I just have to swallow that yeah. uh, as long as we get to know the information at some point it's not lost if they're thrown away without anybody ever seeing them I think that's that would be wrong but if they're put in trust for their release eventually or whatever whatever they decide that will be the right thing because it's personal it's family you know nobody else's family the Beatles were now big business as well as a musical institution they were the hottest property in the world Mal Evans the Beatles road manager for 11 years is currently writing a book about his experiences with the group entitled 200 miles to go Mal spoke with us about the selling of the Beatles here he is we talked about the way in which the Beatles were very good to other people and, they, and so on. How many people took them? I don't know, the fingers are... <laughs> a lot of people, I think, yeah. A lot of people came. Well, I think, um, you see, a lot of people have what I call short-term heads, <laughs> you know. They think, well, we get as much out of them as we can now because in six months' time the group isn't going to be here. So they make a quick killing or whatever, you know. And then in six months' time, a year's time, they're still there. So somebody else takes over, you know. So I think a lot of people have come and gone over the years and made money out of them. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 